It's so good to see each of you here this morning. We are continuing in our series of messages from the second letter to the Corinthian church. I've titled the whole series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. Have you ever had a personal experience with the transcendence of God? I can say I've had two of these experiences. One when I was six years old. It always feels kind of stupid to try to describe them because I can't convey in words what the experience was like. But when I was six years old and I sensed, I didn't hear any voices, but I sensed in my soul Jesus saying, I want to come into your heart. And I said, yes, and he did. I remember that very clearly, even though I was only six years old. I've never had an experience like that again. I had a similar experience when I was 14, and it wasn't God saying, I want to come into your heart, but it was uh, like, the best way to describe it is like the veil hiding the glory of God thinned, and I perceived the depth and fury of God's love for me. I've had many emotional experiences through the years. I've been in worship every Sunday pretty much, and I have uh, been through services where the worship kind of spontaneously went long, and and I've been through a lot of those kinds of things, but these are the only two moments where I feel like I've had a personal experience with something that goes beyond the normal Day-to-day, this is what life on this earth looks like. Both of these moments were otherworldly. I've not had experiences like them since. I think God gives us glimpses of himself, peaks into eternity. I also think that's not where he wants us living this life. We will one day enjoy eternity with God. And in that realm that we only get glimpses of now, that realm will be all that we know for eternity. But how should we live our lives now? Should we spend our time pining for what is not yet here? Should we pretend that we've already got it? Paul gives us a good example of how we should live our lives right now in light of God and what lies ahead. I've titled the message today, Weakness and True Power. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll look at the first 10 verses. Let's start in one. I must boast, though there is nothing to be gained by it, yet I will go on into visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and 14 years ago, whether in the body I know not, or out of the body I know not, God knows, that person was caught up to the third heaven. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I know not, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard unutterable words that a human is not allowed to speak. Paul continues, and in fact, the passage we're looking at today basically concludes his boast. These 10 verses in chapter 12. And he's been on this project of boasting, as he puts it, uh, for for quite a bit of time, uh, starting in chapter 10. 
And Paul feels compelled to do this. I must boast. It is necessary to boast. I think Paul understands, and especially last week, I think it really stood out, that Paul felt uncomfortable with this boast. He kept throwing in disclaimers. Uh, I'm, I'm talking like a madman. I am, I'm out of my mind here with what I'm saying. So he, he constantly was throwing in uh, indications that this is not the way we as children of God, uh, as followers of Christ, should be conducting ourselves. Our lives should not be characterized by boasting and bragging and prideful uh, exercises. But Paul feels compelled to do this. He feels, I I suspect, that God laid heavily on his heart that the way to confront the false apostles that were right now operating in the church of Corinth, the way to confront them was to uh, expose the lie of their false version of the Christian faith through this boast that is very ironic, that is almost a parody of boasting. And so expose the lie through this boast. So Paul feels compelled to boast, but he says up front, I, get, I gain nothing by doing this. Now normally, when people brag, it's because they're going to get something out of it. They want to convince other people to have a higher opinion of them than they do, and that higher opinion will translate into a better a privilege, or maybe somebody will give you money, or maybe they will give you respect, or you're going to get something out of it. Paul says, I know I'm not going to get anything out of it. And he's already made it very clear. I have never taken a penny from you guys in Corinth, and I'm not going to, to my dying day, I'm not going to take a penny from you guys. So he knows this isn't going to result in him getting money. And he knows this isn't going to result in him being treated like, paraded around like some glorious leader because all he's been boasting about is his weakness. His brokenness, the many hardships and beatings he has taken along the way. I'm not going to get anything out of this, but I'm going to go on into visions and revelations from the Lord. And this is where people really like, in the Christian community, this is where people like to boast, right? There's nothing people... uh, like more than hearing of these great secret visions and people write books about it and people are fascinated by people who had a vision of heaven and hell and in this vision they saw what heaven was like and they saw what hell was like and who was there and why they were there and they give you all this information about all the things that they witnessed in their glorious vision And I'm sure the Corinthians are thinking, okay, now we're getting to the good stuff. Paul's going to tell us about his visions and revelations. Paul's going to spill the beans on all these glorious things he's experienced. Notice how he starts to talk about it. I know a man in Christ. So he's going to tell the whole thing in the third person. He's talking about somebody else it looks like. I think, and, and most people would agree with me, that Paul is not talking about somebody else, but that he's talking about himself obliquely. He's using this distancing language, uh, but that he's actually talking about his own personal experience. And the reason I would say that is, uh, if this is his boast, 
and he talks about this vision that this person saw. He never tells us who this person was. Then in what sense would that be Paul's boast? That he knows some unnamed person that had a vision? Uh, clearly, I think, Paul is, is saying, uh, this is something that happened to me 14 years ago. And so extraordinary was this experience for Paul. His, it was a transcendent encounter with God. And it was so extraordinary that to this day, as he writes this letter 14 years later, he's not even sure if he was there physically or not. Was I there in the body? Was I there out of the body? I have no idea. God knows. God's the one that did it, so he knows exactly how that all happened, uh, whether in the body or apart from the body. I have no idea. Only God knows. Uh, but what was it that happened? He says that he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, Jewish mystics at the time were... Uh, always talking about things like angels, demons, and heaven and hell and all that kind of thing. They were very fascinated with the topic. And some Jewish mystics would talk about one heaven the way we would. Uh, some would talk to about as many as 955 heavens. Uh, so they were all over the gamut uh, with how many heavens there might be. But I don't think, and you might be disappointed by my understanding of these words of Paul. I don't think he's saying that heaven can be divided into three distinct realms and that, you know, somehow uh, different categories of, of uh, spheres of heavenly experience uh, are to be expected. I don't think he's talking about that. I think this is a reference to Genesis. When God first created everything, we're told about that day in which if you look out over the expanse uh, uh, you're standing by the seashore and you look out and you see blue and then there's this horizon line and then you see blue but clearly this blue is different from that blue we're told in, cre in the creation account that God's the one who separated out those two blues and uh, separated the waters that were under from the waters that were above because you get rain from the above part uh, and that he called the above part heaven now we would think, okay, so we're talking about atmosphere, but no, then in creation, God fills this second area that he separated out. On, uh, in a, a later day in creation, he fills that heaven with the sun, the moon, the stars, all the heavenly bodies. So there's the water we can move around in. For the ancients, there's the heaven we can see, which is inhabited by all the things we see out in the starry night. So basically, the whole rest of the universe we can contemplate from our position here on this spinning ball. Uh, but that's, so we have one heaven, another heaven, and we have some access. It's a little harder to get into this second heaven, but we can use airplanes, we can use rocket ships to uh, move a little bit into this second heaven. I think when we're talking about the third heaven, we're talking about something that's beyond the whole cosmos, beyond everything you look up at and see in the starry night. That's the second heaven. The third heaven is the place where God reigns supreme. 
where his will is perfectly implemented and there is no presence of sin or death. That is what we are told in Christ will one day be what all creation becomes at the return of Christ. We will have new heavens and new earth free from the stain, the scourge of sin and death forever and heaven will become creation. But at this moment, Paul has this experience of heaven, which in a parallel uh, in verse 3, or I'm sorry, verse 4, he describes as paradise, this third heaven, paradise, Um, which is another way, uh, and that has, again, allusions or connections back to Genesis, right? The idea of this perfect creation free from the taint of sin and death where God and man can commune without the interference of all of that. He was caught up to that. And he heard unutterable words. Now, I don't know if that means, uh, and there are two ways we might could understand it. Unutterable because you're forbidden to speak of it. Um, and, you know, words that a human is not allowed to speak. So, uh, words that God says, okay, you can hear this, but you can't repeat any of it. Kind of a divine secret. Uh, The other way of understanding this, and I, I lean more towards this other way, is that what he's saying is that we lack the language to talk about this. You see, when you experience the transcendent, there's nothing in the life we are living this side of that that gives us the language to talk about it. Let me give you an example. How would you describe the color blue to somebody born blind? What are the words? I think that might be what Paul is pointing to here. Unutterable words because there just are not human words to, uh, uh, to, to, to talk about what I'm talking about here, what I experienced here. And a human is not allowed to speak them because it's just not part of the human experience. It transcends, it goes beyond, it's, it's too much for what we can manage in our vocabulary. Paul had a very real experience with the transcendence of God. Let me ask you, how have you experienced the transcendent God? I think if we were to sit in a room and talk about this, we would find that our stories are wildly divergent. God makes himself known to us in so many unique ways. Uh, But I do think the experience of this encounter with God that goes beyond any ordinary reality that we have experienced in this life, I think uh, that is something common to most of us at least. Let's keep going, verse 5. On behalf of such an individual, I will boast. But on behalf of myself, I will not boast except in weaknesses. For even if I want to boast, I will not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from doing so, lest anyone should reckon in me beyond what he sees in me, or what anyone hears from me, despite the extraordinary nature of the revelations. Paul says, on behalf of that individual, that individual experiencing the glory of God's perfect paradise. I can boast about that. And what Paul is talking about here is not some merit of his own. 
He's talking about the reality of being transported into this glorious reality, which is an act of God. God is the only one who can do this, and and he's talking about what Christ has promised to do with every one of us who put our faith in him, to one day uh, absolutely transform and glorify us and make us fit for eternity, free from sin, free from all of the weaknesses and lack that that defines our experience right now. Paul says, I can brag about what Christ has promised and will do in each one of us. I can brag about the glory that lies before us all because of Jesus. I can boast about that. But if you're asking me to boast about what I am right now, all I can talk to you about is weakness. If I'm going to boast in myself, not in Christ, if I'm not going to boast in what Christ is doing, if I'm going to talk about me, The best thing I can talk about is my weakness, my many weaknesses. Now, Paul says, if I did want to brag about this vision stuff, I wouldn't be a fool in the sense that I wouldn't be fabricating some story to impress you guys. I would be speaking the truth. But Paul says, I refrain from doing so. I think it's very significant. Paul tells us of this vision. Notice it was not a, a, a recurring thing in his life. It was not a pattern. It happened once. Fourteen years back, that might have been seven or ten years after Paul's initial conversion. Uh, Fourteen years back as he writes this letter, it's never happened since. What did he see in there? He doesn't tell us, but I suspect that if he was in this paradise of God, that perhaps that is where he got some of the granular detail he provides that nobody else in the New Testament provides about the final day of Christ's coming. In 1 and in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul describes the coming of Christ and gives us details that are found nowhere else about uh, the dead in Christ will rise first and we will, uh, those who remain and are still alive will be gathered to them and we will meet him in the air. And he talks about final judgment. And, but notice, even though Paul is providing greater detail, He is really in no way modifying what we have from the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus said he's going to judge the living and the dead, that on that day uh, he will uh, judge everyone and that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And Christ talked about all of this and all all Paul provides in his letters is a little bit more detail about some of the incidentals of that day. Contrast that with people who are constantly appealing to visions to convince the Christians this is the way the spiritual world on earth works. Have you heard of dominionism? That there are seven mountains that have to be dominated? That's based on a a private vision somebody had. There are whole denominations and churches chasing after this because some individual had a dream or a vision. And it's not, let's implement the gospel message, let's implement the gospel commandment to go to the ends of the earth. It is, let us wrest control of these seven areas of control in the world, and through this, Christianity will win the day. 
Never mind that there's nothing in the Bible about that. Somebody had a vision. Let's do it. Let's chase after these powers. Well, Paul, even if his visions are behind these small details he throws in in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, even if that, those visions are the, the reason for some of this detail he's providing, he's not really taking it in any different direction than uh, it would have been if he had said nothing about it. He's not adding anything significantly new. He is providing comfort to those who have lost loved ones. Don't worry. When everyone's raised to face judgment, your deceased loved ones will be raised too, and they're not going to miss out on resurrection. Don't worry about that. Um, But Paul never, in his letters, uh, this is the only time he even mentions this vision. And even if he is using that information from his vision when he's writing 1 Corinthians 15 and and 1 Thessalonians, he's not saying, none of the other apostles have this information, but God gave me all this special information and let me tell you what nobody else can tell you. Paul never writes that way. In fact, he insists over and over that his gospel is the very same gospel that the other apostles are preaching and that he has been given the seal of approval of the original apostles and that he is in that same vein of the work of Christ that they are in. Paul doesn't try to distinguish himself through his visions or separate himself. But he says, even if I I were to get into all these details and I wouldn't be lying, he says, I'm not going to do that because I don't want anybody to reckon in me beyond what he sees in me or what anyone hears from me. Here's what Paul says. I don't want you to evaluate me based on my visions. And here's the problem, and Paul understood this. Paul knew the vision had happened. The revelation had happened. God knew the vision had happened, the revelation had happened. Nobody else knew that. Just because Paul says it happened doesn't mean it happened. Now, if Paul insisted on talking about these visions and saying, no, you really have to believe it, who is Paul asking people to put their faith in? He would be diverting people from Christ to put their faith in him. And this is a huge problem in the Christian church. People who are obsessed with personal revelations that they're receiving from God and you can't get it from the Bible. You can't get it from praying. You can only get it from me. I'm the prophet. I'm the revealer of the secrets God is keeping from you. And you can't get access to this except through me. I become the one through whom the grace and revelation of Christ is coming to you. And people who have abandoned witchcraft have just substituted it with prophets. They don't go get somebody to read the cards. They go ask the prophet to tell them what's happening. Paul didn't do that. He said, you know what? When anybody looks at me, I don't want them to evaluate me based on my claims about glorious transcendental things God has exposed me to. That is none of their business, and it's really not anything that they need to believe in or not. It's immaterial. What I want people to consider when they're evaluating me is, what did I say and what did I do? Open your eyes, open your ears. 
observe. And here's where Paul knows the false apostles in Corinth are going to be exposed. Paul is living his life like an open book. When he talks about getting beaten, there are a lot of people in that church who've witnessed that themselves. When he talks about being put in prison, there are people in that church who have visited him in prison. It's an open book. Paul has lived openly in front of them, and everyone in Corinth knows Paul has not taken a penny from any one of them. Now, these false apostles that are in Corinth, just watch them, Paul's saying. Pay attention to how they live their lives because they are abusing you. They are taking advantage of you. They are taking not only your money but your dignity, and they are parading themselves pridefully as overlords over you. You want to evaluate me? Look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm living my life. Look at what I'm saying. Pay attention to what I'm saying, the content of my words. Does it accord with Jesus and the, the, the gospel? Does it accord with the God who reveals himself to us in the scriptures? Or is it somehow different from that? Just evaluate me based on what you see in here. And Paul says, I don't care how extraordinary these revelations may have been. I don't want that to be the basis of the way you interact with me. The only reason Paul's even mentioning this is to undermine the boasting of those who are trying to use these kinds of experiences to raise their own capital in front of others and to gain something for themselves out of it. And Paul mentions these in such a way that diverts all attention away from himself. I'm sure people in Corinth were waiting for all the salacious details about his grand, glorious visions of paradise, and Paul says nothing about it. Not in this letter, not anywhere else. This was common in the writing of the time. Jewish mystics would write books. They'd write it in the name of Enoch or Moses or Abraham, and they'd have these glorious visions of heaven, and they'd all these angelic beings, and they'd be given all this information about the hierarchies of angels in heaven and all the hierarchies of demons and all the things that are going on on, the, on earth and all the nations of the earth and what God is up to, and, and they would write books like this. I think it's outstanding that Paul talks about this vision and then says nothing about it. He gives no details. Let me ask you, how do we misappropriate Christ's boast and make it our boast? Let's finish verse 7. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. I pleaded with the Lord three times about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is enough for you, for the power is reaching perfection in weakness. Paul knew himself. Paul was an ambitious young man. So much so that even though he was born 
out of the territory of Palestine, the Romans called Palestine. He was born up in Tarsus of Cilicia. Uh, His family, though, was well enough positioned He was a Roman citizen by birth that he was able to maneuver and not only make it all the way down to Jerusalem, the very heart and soul of Jewish life, but was able to get himself apprenticed to the most respected rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. So Paul was clearly a man of ambition. He wanted to be the best. He wanted to study under the best and he wanted to be the best prepared rabbi that Israel had ever known. He knew that about himself. So he says, you know, God knows me. And he knew that my tendency would be to exalt myself, to lift my own standing above others. So God gave me a thorn in the flesh. He allowed a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. People have been speculating since Paul wrote this about what this thorn in the flesh was. They say, thorn in the flesh, it must be some physical ailment. When Paul first had the experience with Christ on the road to Damascus, we we say that he was blinded. We are told that he was blinded by it and spent several days blind and finally scales fell off of his eyes and he recovered his sight. But when he writes to the Galatians, he says, when I first preached among you, in your cities, uh, I, I was, it was in a time of physical weakness and you guys would have even given me your own eyes if you could have. So some people say, ah, so Paul had a problem with his eyesight. And of course, with all the writing he tried to do and all the reading he had to do of Scripture, it was a great impediment to his ministry to have poor eyesight. Maybe that was it. Others say, no, Uh, remember all the beatings he talks about? Not just beatings and the ways in which his body was exposed to the probability of infection and debilitating beatings, but he talks about traveling in that area of Asia Minor and being out on the road and being... Uh, malnourished and not having enough to eat and shivering by the side of the road because it is cold and he doesn't have adequate clothing to face that cold and we can imagine well how Paul might have picked up some nagging respiratory ailment through his travels some people believe that's what Paul is talking about here something that made him even weaker for the travels he needed to do and made it even harder for him to do the ministry he had to do that was already hard as it was. But the way Paul used the term flesh, it could be anything. Paul used the term flesh very broadly. He didn't just mean physical. It could be any area of his life in which there was just a weakness in him, something Satan could exploit and torment him about. We have no idea, and I think it's a waste of time to speculate. But there was something in his life that was evil, something sent to him from Satan himself, from an enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy him. And maybe it's a physical ailment, maybe it's something else, but it is something wicked and evil that is affecting his life and tormenting him. Paul begs the Lord three times to remove it from him. He knows 
his, he feels like his ministry would be much more effective if it didn't have this nagging hindrance. He could serve Christ better without it. It would be more powerful. He would be less limited. But the Lord said no. The Lord said, my grace is enough for you. You don't need to be exempted from this. You just need me. In fact, and God granted Paul in this occasion a kindness that he doesn't always grant us. Many times God will say no and that's the end of it. But sometimes, as in this one, God explained himself. No, because... The power is reaching perfection and weakness. Paul let, God let Paul know, my power needs your weakness to really do its thing. I don't need your power. I don't need your sufficiency to do what I'm trying to do. I need your weakness. I need your frailty. That's where I'm going to be able to do amazing things. I want you to think about Paul's life, what lies ahead for him. I'll tell you his plans. He's up north in Macedonia trying to finish gathering this offering. He's been pleading and pushing and working to gather for years. And he's, when he finishes gathering it in Macedonia, he's going to come down to Corinth. He's going to finish putting together this great offering he's been working on for years. And his vision is, I'm going to go from there to Jerusalem. I'm going to deliver this offering. And it is going to heal the wound, the profound divide in the church today between the Jewish followers of Jesus and the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And this is going to be a healing balm on that wound and he's I'm going to do that and after I do that I'm going to come back to Rome and I'm going to ask the Roman churches to send me off with their blessing because I feel like I've finished all I can do on the eastern side of the Roman Empire and I feel burdened to bring the gospel to the farthest west reaches of the Roman Empire all the way to Spain I want to go out there in fact when he gets to Corinth he will write a letter to the churches in Rome trying to lay the groundwork for that future mission uh, telling them, I, I'm, I want to go through Rome and I want you guys to pray for me and send me on and let me tell you the gospel I'm preaching so you feel comfortable endorsing me as I go further west. Those are his great plans for ministry. What's actually going to happen? Well, when he makes it to Jerusalem to deliver this offering, almost immediately he's going to be arrested and falsely accused of bringing non-Jewish people into the temple area. We have no idea what happened with the offering he spent years gathering. The book of Acts says nothing about it. I'm sure it was delivered, but from all we know, this grand vision of reunifying the church fizzled. Nothing significant seems to have come from it. All that happens is Paul gets arrested.
spends two years in prison in Caesarea Maritima, and then because the Jews are making a plot to murder him, he has to appeal his case to the Caesar. He will sail to Rome. Uh, he will have a sh another shipwreck. It'll be at least his third shipwreck that he's experienced in his life. On his way to Rome, he will be shipwrecked, but eventually will make it to Rome where he spends at least two more years in prison before finally bringing his case before Caesar. Paul will never make it to Spain. All his grand visions of what he's going to do for Christ seem to, uh, they're, they're going to come to nothing, it seems like. All we see in the remaining years appears to be weakness and failure. Paul says, power is perfection in weakness. God tells Paul, I am going to use the weakness of your life to do my powerful work. You know what happened during those apparently wasted years locked away in prison? He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. The letters in the Bible that kind of flesh for us what the life of the church is meant to look like. This whole idea of being one body in Christ and, and the glorious things we find in Colossians about the pre-existence of God and how all things were made through Christ and how all things are sustained by Christ and all things were made for Christ. Paul, over these years where he could not do the ministry he so longed to do, had plenty of solitude and time to think through this gospel he preached. And to think through, what does the church need to know about it? And to write these letters. I want you to go and read these letters I've just mentioned. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And try to picture what the church would be today if those letters were not in the Bible. God's power was being perfected in the crushing weakness of Paul's life in ways Paul would never fully appreciate himself. How have you exercised faith in God when he has allowed you to suffer? I want to say something else about this. A lot of times people mistakenly talk about faith as though faith is the way we get God to do what we want him to do. In fact, people even use the language that only should apply to God to talk about themselves because if God spoke the world into existence, then I need to speak the world I want into existence. So I have the power by proclaiming the words to make things happen and to create the reality I want to live in. So if I do not want to be sick, then I will just speak health into existence. The Bible never tells us we have that power. And it's not built into the act of speaking. It's who's speaking that makes the difference. And God can speak things into existence. We can't. And sometimes people think faith is simply wanting something bad enough that God has to do it for you. That's not faith in God. That's faith in your will. Faith that you want it more than God. 
And you want it so much that you can bend God to your will and God has no recourse, no agency except to do whatever the prayer of faith puts before him. I would suggest to you that that is a false teaching. That God remains an absolutely free being and when we raise our prayers and petitions to him, he retains the right to respond to them as he chooses. And he can say yes, he can say wait, he can say no. He can say anything he wants to. So what is faith? Faith is trusting that God is who he says he is. Faith has to be directed at God, not at the outcome I want from him. So that if the answer is no, faith means I believe that God knows better than me and that God is wise and God is good and God is powerful. So if he says no, it's not because he's not powerful enough to do it. It's not because he hates me. It's because he knows better than me. And faith embraces the no. Paul embraced the no. And sometimes you experience that God has used you to heal somebody else and used you by your prayer of faith, has done something spectacular in the life of somebody else, delivered somebody else from something, and then you ask him for the exact same thing, and he says no. And faith is saying, God, thank you. I trust you. I will embrace weakness if that's what you need to do the powerful things you want to do. I will embrace suffering. I will embrace brokenness. That is a word of faith. Let's finish verse 9. So gladly I will boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I am well pleased in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions and distresses for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the culminating teaching of Paul's boast. Why is Paul boasting about things everybody else is embarrassed to hear about? We don't want to hear about suffering. We don't want to hear about weakness. We want victory. We want to be the guys who win. We want success, not failure. We want power, not weakness. We want to be in control, not at the mercy of an oppressive, draconic government. How many times in the history of the church, though, has the church flourished best? under those draconic governments. And how horrendous has it been when Christians have wrested control of the government themselves. God's power chooses to rest on weakness, not strength. You see, God's not looking to come alongside us and somehow supplement our own strength. As though all we needed was a little push. Paul's interested in utter dependence. I mean, I'm sorry, God is interested in our utter dependence. And Paul says, because of that, 
I'm not embarrassed by all this stuff. I'm going to brag about it. I'm going to talk about how weak I am. I'm going to talk about how much I have suffered. How deeply wounded I am physically and emotionally and spiritually by the hardships I have had to endure as I have walked with Christ in this life. I will gladly celebrate them because I want to be the kind of life that Christ will choose to rest his power upon. Some people think we call down Christ's power. We command the fire of God's Spirit to come down upon us. And Paul, notice, he doesn't say, I'm going to tell Christ to make his power rest on me. He says, I'm just going to try to make myself an adequate recipient for what he has to do. Christ will decide where to make his power rest. But I am well pleased. I am pleased as punch in my weaknesses in the insults and half-truths and lies people spread about me. I am happy in the persecutions I endure from people who hate my guts and all the distresses that I have had to face in my love for the church through the years for Christ. All of that. I am so happy to live in this space because when I am weak, because of Christ, that's when I am strong. We spend our lives running from these things, desperately trying to get away from pain and weakness and suffering. We want control. We want freedom from dependence. We want to call the shots ourselves. And we want to be the kind of people that people around us look to and say, boy, I wish I had it as together as this person. I wish my life were as glorious as this person's. Paul is challenging us to em em embrace a whole different way of thinking about our lives. A life that is not about raising my personal brand image, but a life that is surrendered to Christ being glorified in my life. And if the way that that will happen best is in my weakness, I will live in that space happily. Sometimes we think we can't be happy until God releases us from suffering. We cannot enjoy our life until the trial is over. What if the trial is never going to end this side of heaven? What if the weakness is never going to go away this side of heaven? Are we ready to pursue Christ into that? To become lives that are adequate uh, contexts in which he may rest his power? When we do it that way, there's no way people can accidentally think it was us. When inexplicable power is visible in a weak life, only Christ receives the glory. 
Let me ask you, how has God made his power rest on your weakness? Here's the problem with the transcendent. It's outside our frame of reference, our personal experience. That's who God is. And for many of us, uh, there have been moments when the veil between our universe and the God who exists beyond it has thinned, and we have glimpsed something of the awesome nature of God. This is what lies ahead of us for those of us who have entrusted our lives to Jesus. And we may be tempted to use these experiences to fuel pride and arrogance. But God wants us to live our lives grounded in the realities of our present existence. Our weakness, our susceptibility to suffering and hardship, to insult and abuse, it's not something we need to run away from. If we will inhabit this space and cling to God, he will cause his glorious power to rest upon our lives. And paradoxically, he will bring about his most powerful works this side of heaven in the smallest and most vulnerable corners of our lives. Here's the beauty of our great God. He loves to take the weakness of his children and cover it in his glorious power. Will you abandon prideful strutting? Will you embrace weakness and look to Christ to cause his power to rest upon you? We're going to sing a song. And this is our time to respond to the Word of God. I'm not sure what God might have put in your heart today. Maybe you have been running from the very things God's trying to call you to embrace. Maybe you've been trying to arrange your life in such a way that you don't have to depend on Christ and you want to repent of that and ask Christ to give you a heart that's willing to depend on Him. Whatever it is God is putting on your heart today, this is your time to respond to His Word and to tell Him, I'm, I'm here for whatever you're asking of me. Let's all stand. There are people, I'd like you to come to the, forward, come to the front now. We have people who are going to be here at the front. They're just like you and me. They're just here for you to share with them whatever God has put in your heart and pray with you. Please come while we sing.